Hi, Steve here. Welcome to another episode of the Natural Curiosity Project. This program is a little longer than most, but I think you'll enjoy it. It's a pretty good story. Let me give you a little background before I get into it. Back in the 1980s, we were living in the San Francisco Bay Area. I was just getting started as a writer, and I did a lot of feature articles for local magazines. One of them was about a cattle ranch on Mount Diablo, near where we lived. I spent a lot of time there and even got to ride on a multi-day cattle drive. That's a whole other podcast that I'll record someday, but the experience got me interested in, there's that old curiosity thing popping up again, the original cattle drives back in the 19th century. So I did some research and I ended up publishing an article about them in a major magazine. It's one of the most interesting projects I ever did. Here's the story. The 19th century settling of the American West was one of the great migratory surges of all time. Settlers by the millions flooded westward to start new lives on the plains of North America. But long before they got to St. Louis, the Texas cattle barons were already running cattle to northern markets. For 80 years, they ruled the land, driving about 300,000 head of cattle a year from the stockyards of Fort Worth all the way to the Chicago-bound railheads of Kansas. And then, in a change so abrupt as to defy explanation, the long drives ended. By 1885, 350,000 cattle trudged over the sage-perfumed Chisholm Trail to Kansas every year. By 1886, there were none. Now, three reasons are typically given for the death of the long drive. The first is the westward extension of the railroad. Its arrival in Texas in 1873 did make it cheaper to ship cattle to market by rail than to trail drive them. The second factor was Joseph Glidden's invention of barbed wire in 1874, which in the minds of many people ended the free range and made it difficult to drive cattle to market because of horizon-to-horizon fences. The third factor, and the most emotional, was the fear of Texas fever, sometimes called splenic fever, believed to be carried by Texas longhorns. Now, there's no question that these factors accelerated the demise of the overland cattle drives, but they weren't the main reasons. It turns out that their disappearance owes less to the romantic world of cowboys and farmers, to tick fever and railroad encroachment and barbed wire barriers, than to net present values, production possibility frontiers, and discounted weight ratios. In short, the realm of the economist. Ultimately, it was pure boardroom skullduggery that did in the cattle drives. In 1521, Gregorio de Villalobos, who later became the governor of New Spain, accompanied by six heifers and a single Andalusian bull, followed Hernán Cortés into Mexico. Twenty years later, Francisco Coronado, in search of the seven golden cities of Ciola, marched out of Mexico, trailing 500 head of cattle descended from Villalobos' original seven. During the long march north, some of the cattle disappeared into the mesquite thickets of northern Mexico and what's now southern Texas, where they flourished. By the end of the 18th century, they were as ubiquitous as lizards. Now, these weren't the dopey, white-faced cattle that lined the fences today along the highway and watched the cars go by. They were fast and they were mean, with sharp horns that spanned more than five feet tip to tip. There had to be a pretty compelling reason to capture them, and for the Texas cowboy, that reason was the growing American hunger for beef. It didn't take the cattle barons long to realize that a cow that was worth $4 in Texas could be sold for 40 in Chicago. The only challenge was getting them there since there was no railroad, at least not yet. 
The man who cracked the code and delivered thousands of Texas cattle to the dusty railheads of Abilene, Dodge City, and other Kansas frontier towns was Joseph McCoy. He was convinced that the best way to get cattle from those towns to Chicago in the early 1860s was by rail. Like any commodity, beef was subject to market value fluctuations, so the quicker he could get his herd to market, the better. Since the railroads didn't run as far south as Texas, he decided to do the next best thing. Since he couldn't bring the railroad to the cattle, he'd bring the cattle to the railroad. As he describes in his 1874 book, Historic Sketches of the Cattle Trade of the West and Southwest, by establishing a cattle loading point near the railroad, he would create a place whereat the southern drover and the northern buyer would meet upon equal footing and both be undisturbed by mobs or swindling thieves. These cattle drives weren't small operations. A typical herd had about 3,000 head of cattle, accompanied by a trail boss, 10 to 15 hired hands, each with a string of 5 to 10 horses, a horse wrangler, and a cook who drove the chuck wagon and kept the men fed with beans and bacon, bread, meat, and coffee. They drove and grazed the cattle most of the day, moving the herd in relays at night. The Chisholm Trail was just over 500 miles long, and at a typical pace of 10 miles a day, the trip from Fort Worth to Abilene took just shy of two months. When the cattle sold at the railhead towns, the men were paid $40 for each month they were on the trail. In 1866, McCoy began to ask railroad executives to support his wild idea of using their rail cars to transport cattle. This had never been done before, and his requests fell on deaf ears. He was ridiculed and assured that none of the railroads were the least bit interested in sinking money into such a ludicrous plan. After one particularly annoying meeting with a railroad executive, McCoy wondered what could have been the inscrutable purposes of Jehovah in creating and suffering such a great being to remain on earth instead of appointing him to manage the universe. But he wouldn't give up. And finally, the Hannibal and St. Joseph Railroad, which ran between Kansas City and Chicago, quoted him acceptable rates for shipping his cattle. So he began to look for a town along the rail lines that could serve as his headquarters. After presenting his proposal to the local leaders of several communities, most of whom regarded him as a monster threatening calamity and pestilence, as one resident said, he finally got approval in 1867 from Abilene, Kansas. Now, Abilene at the time was a small, dead place with 12 log huts with dirt roofs. To call it a town was pretty generous. It was west of settled farming country, so he didn't have to worry about free-roaming cattle mixing it up with the settlers. A good road wound through Abilene, and the Kansas River flowed just to the south. And in spite of McCoy's less-than-glowing description of the place, Abilene actually had a lot to offer— it was surrounded by four horizons of grass, and Fort Riley nearby offered protection and bought significant quantities of beef to feed the soldiers that were garrisoned there. Now, McCoy was persistent and aggressive, and in 60 days, he converted Abilene from a small, dead place into a first-rate shipping facility. He built an office and a hotel, a shipping yard, and a large barn. By July, long lines of cattle were already moving north out of Texas, and he wanted to be ready for them. 
He needed holding pens for the cattle, so he persuaded the Kansas Pacific Railroad to sell him railroad ties to build corrals strong enough for the feisty longhorns that would soon be arriving. Many of those pens are still standing. I've seen them. They'd easily hold elephants. When the first cattle crested the rise between the river and Abilene, they were met by a town in full celebration. McCoy's three-story hotel swelled to capacity and stayed that way for the entire season. The cattle were fed sweet Kansas hay and allowed to recover from the long journey, gaining back the weight they lost on the drive north. The following day, the first trainload of livestock left Abilene for Chicago. McCoy watched it disappear down the Caw Valley and knew that this was the start of something that would get much, much bigger. Even with their late start in the season, Abilene shipped more than 36,000 head of cattle during the six available months of 1867. As the Kansas winter arrived, McCoy prepared for spring. He realized that if trail-driven cattle were going to be the mainstay of his business, then a safe route from Texas to Kansas through the dangerous and unpredictable Indian Territory, what's now Oklahoma, was important. Because there was no established route, drovers would choose the path of least resistance to reach a railhead based on weather, rumors of Indian attack, the availability of grass, and the vagaries of the herd. But McCoy knew that a trail of sorts was already established between Brownsville, Texas, and Wichita, Kansas. During that time, the trail didn't really have a formal name, but it was known by the name of Cherokee trader Jesse Chisholm, who began using it in the fall of 1864 to haul mercantile goods south from Wichita. McCoy advertised the 520-mile Chisholm Trail as the quickest route from Texas to the cattle markets. Word spread pretty quickly, and it was soon crowded with northbound beef. In 1869, 160,000 head passed through McCoy's Abilene shipping operation. In 1870, the number rose to 300,000, and the Kansas Pacific, which had once laughed at McCoy's harebrained idea of a cattle kingdom, could barely handle the load. By now, the Chisholm Trail had become the cattleman's interstate. It was worn deep into bedrock in many places and averaged between two and 400 yards wide with loafing areas and bedding grounds along the way for the stock. It's still visible today. By 1870, Abilene had become a community to be reckoned with. It had 10 boarding houses, 10 saloons, five general stores, and four hotels. In the middle of the main street was a prairie dog town. The proprietor of a nearby saloon sold the little rodents to eastern tourists who took them home as souvenirs. Now most of the cow towns, including Abilene and its famous cousin Dodge City, had red light districts beyond the town's legal limits. Abilene's red light district was variously known as Texas Town, the Beer Garden, Fisher's Edition, and the Devil's Edition. It had dance halls, speaking platforms, saloons, and brothels, and was known locally as the Valley of Perdition. Ruled by Wild Bill Hickok until 1876 when he was shot in the back of the head while playing cards, the Valley of Perdition earned its name and reestablished its reputation every night. 1871 proved to be Abilene's last big cattle year. 
During its five-year reign as king of the cattle towns, small farmers pushed westward along the Kansas Pacific Rail Route, building fences, plowing fields, and establishing homesteads until much of the open range was gone. Abilene became one more prairie town catering to the farmers and homesteaders who surrounded it. By February of 1872, the settlers were so embedded in the culture of the area that they issued an order barring cattlemen, their proclaimed natural enemies, from entering Abilene. We, the undersigned members of the Farmers Protective Association and officers and citizens of Dickinson County, Kansas, most respectfully request that all who have contemplated driving cattle to Abilene in the coming season to seek some other point for shipment as the inhabitants of Dickinson will no longer submit to the evils of the trade. Following this announcement, Abilene's cattle boom collapsed, and with it most of the town's business. Joseph McCoy and others like him, however, had seen the changes coming and had already established new boom towns to the west where open grazing land remained. By the end of 1872, the citizen proclamations had backfired and Abilene's leaders begged the drivers and shippers to come back, but it was too late. Abilene became just another prairie outpost, windblown and forgotten, its citizens reminded of better days every time the eastbound train passed through the town on the way to Chicago, loaded with cattle. Innovation and change were as much a part of the 19th century as dust and cowhide. Scholars of the American West list four major change agents that had the most impact on the cattle trade. The first was the arrival of the railroad. The second, the early knee-jerk cattle quarantines. Third, wave after wave of settlers all staking claims to new unfettered lives. And finally, the invention of barbed wire. Let's start with that. In 1874, using a modified coffee grinder, Joseph Glidden cranked out his first strand of the stuff. The long-term effect was that, starting in the Texas panhandle, the open range began to disappear. Initially, barbed wire was a hard product to move. At first, the cattlemen rejected it because they thought it would hurt their stock, creating wounds that would encourage screwworm infections, a nasty parasite that was difficult to treat. When the Texas legislature threatened to make the wire illegal, Glidden and his supporters sent two extraordinarily gifted salesmen into ranching country where they built a barbed wire corral and filled it with fire-tempered Texas longhorns. After weeks of bumping and rubbing against the wire, it was clear that the barbs posed no threat to the thick-skinned animals. The cattlemen were soon convinced that barbed wire would hold cattle without injury and would dramatically reduce the cost of fencing since cattle had to graze on large open pieces of land and barbed wire could economically fence in a large area. To further prove the point, Glidden established the first barbed wire enclosed ranch in the Texas Panhandle along the banks of Tacoris Creek. The ranch became the town of Amarillo, where I happen to be born. It probably won't surprise you to know that I have a book on my shelf called Barbs, Prongs, Points, Stickers, and Prickers, a complete and illustrated catalog of barbed wire by Robert Clifton. It's filled with hundreds of drawings of different kinds of barbed wire, and yes, I confess to owning a small collection myself. Anyway, back to the story. Between 1866 and 1873, the Overland Trail Drive was the only way to move cattle from Texas to the Midwest since rail service didn't exist yet. The cattle driven to Kansas were heavy, fully mature, four-year-old steers ready for slaughter. They were the most lucrative. But in 1873, the Missouri, Kansas, and Texas Railroad ran a line to Denison, Texas, and the Texas and Pacific Railroad laid track as far as Dallas. 
As a result, it became possible to ship cattle to market instead of trail driving them. By 1882, the number of cattle shipped to market by train exceeded the number driven overland, about 346,000 by train, 250,000 by trail. But even though the railroad now extended all the way to Texas, cattle continued to be driven overland in growing numbers until 1885 when the long drives abruptly ended. Triggered by the demise of George Custer's 7th Cavalry at the Little Bighorn in 1876, the Army moved into the western rangelands with a vengeance, and within five years brutally removed the threat of Indian attack from the great northern rangelands of Wyoming, Montana, Colorado, and North and South Dakota. An investment boom followed as ranchers snatched up available land by the tens of thousands of acres. By 1878, the last great frontier of the American West was on its way to being tamed. This, by the way, was the premise of Larry McMurtry's Lonesome Dove series. But there was one thing missing from the equation. Cattle. Yearlings were needed to stock the ranches that now quilted the northwestern rangelands, and the obvious source was Texas. Mature beef had always been in great demand for the meat markets of the Midwest. Now a secondary market developed, this time for calves. So the Texas ranchers began to drive yearlings in that direction. Now as all this was happening, the profiles of the cattle towns were also changing. They became wholesale depots where northwestern ranchers met southern drovers to negotiate the purchase of stock. By 1880, Yearlings had become the preponderance of cattle on the drives, and while calves were driven overland for the northwest ranches, mature stock still went to Chicago by rail. But a question remains, and this is where the story gets really interesting. If railroad shipment was available from Texas to Kansas, why wasn't it used for shipping calves? Well, the answer is money. According to John Little, a Texas drover of the time, rail shipment wasn't used for calves because the cost of sending cattle over the trail was about $1.25 a head, and the cost of railway shipment was about $4 a head. So why did the railroad ship any cattle at all? Well, research shows that even in the 19th century cattle business, economic fluctuations caused significant shifts in market value, even down to the level of the cattle drive. Most important were the relative prices of mature, four-year-old cattle and yearling calves. Between 1876 and 1883, as settlers poured into the Northwest and demand for startup stock was high, it was more profitable to drive yearlings to Kansas from Texas because of demand from the newly established ranches in the Northwest. But after 1883, as the yearlings matured and the new ranches became self-sustaining, meaning they began breeding their own calves, market demand shifted, making four-year-old beef cattle more profitable. So we would expect the composition of the drives then to shift from four-year-olds to more profitable yearlings by 1876 and then back again in 1883 when the four-year-olds once again became profitable. But here's where things took a funny turn. Even though it would have been more profitable to drive mature cattle after 1883, the actual shift back didn't happen. The reason, again, lies with economics. While it was cheaper to drive cattle to Kansas than to ship them by rail, the cost of trail driving them combined with the cost of then shipping them onto Chicago by rail was about 9% less than the cost of shipping them directly to Chicago from Texas. Considering the lowered risk of cattle loss and the speed with which they could be brought to market, which of course minimized the impact of price fluctuations, 9% seemed to be a cheap price to pay, and the railroads soon became the preferred method for moving cattle from Texas to Chicago. 
Another fact that bears heavily on the demise of the cattle drives is that after 1883, when the northwestern herds were approaching maturity, it made sense for ranchers to let their calves mature before shipment since the older cattle were now more profitable. And since it remained relatively more profitable to ship by rail than to drive, the conclusion was inevitable. The cattle drives were doomed. Just as important was a steady drop in the market price of commodity beef that started early in 1883, largely due to competition. By 1883, the need for Texas cattle began to drop like a rock because the northern ranges became temporarily glutted with yearlings. The yearlings, of course, grew up, and by 1884, they were mature, available, and price competitive. Not only was there now no need for Texas cattle, the northwestern ranchers had compelling reasons to keep them in Texas. With mature cattle now available from Montana, Idaho, the Dakotas, and Colorado, a continued influx of cattle from Texas only glutted the market even more, further depressing the price of beef. In 1884, cattlemen gathered in St. Louis for the first National Cattle Growers Convention. The major issue was protection of open range, and Texas drovers came prepared to discuss a specific solution, the establishment of a national cattle trail three miles wide that would run from the Red River north to the Canadian border. Cattlemen from all over the West came to the meeting, but the Texas proposal was doomed before it was discussed. A Wyoming delegate summed things up. We came from Wyoming objecting to the idea of a trail. Our objection has, to some extent, been misunderstood. We did not object to it on the grounds of the liability of infection or of cattle disease, because cattle driven from the south have never hurt us so far north, and we're not afraid of them. We have objected to the trail simply on the ground of safety of our investments. We have believed that if government made an appropriation whereby a public highway for cattle was to be established over which the immense herds of surplus cattle from Texas were to be invited to come and overwhelm us, we were in danger of obliteration and extinction. Even so, cattle did continue to trickle over the trails for a few more years, but never again in large numbers. As the days of the open range drew to a close, no one expressed their passing better than Theodore Roosevelt in 1888 when he wrote, In its present form, stock raising on the plains is doomed. It can hardly outlast the century. The great free ranges, with their barbarous, picturesque, and curiously fascinating surroundings, mark a primitive stage of existence as surely as do the great tracts of primeval forests, and like the latter, must pass away before the onward march of our people. And we who have felt the charm of the life, and have exulted in its abounding vigor and its bold, restless freedom, will not only regret its passing for our own sakes, but must also feel real sorrow that those who come after us are not to see what is perhaps the pleasantest, healthiest, and most exciting phase of American existence. At the beginning of this episode, I mentioned that while researching this story, I spent time on a cattle ranch in California. During that time, I got to know the ranch foreman really well. Like all ranch foremen, he worked 12 to 16 hours a day, every day, rode a horse because he didn't own a car, fixed fences, chased down cattle, and sang to the herd when he was moving them. His name was Otis Aday, and he was 104 years old. He rode on one of the last cattle drives from Fort Worth to Kansas when he was 11, 
and he came to California from Oklahoma with his parents, not long after that, in the back of a covered wagon. But I'll save that story for another podcast. I'm Steve Shepard. For the Natural Curiosity Project, thanks for dropping by. And hey, if you're enjoying the podcast, would you mind helping us spread the word by leaving a review over at iTunes or SoundCloud? It really helps a lot. Thanks very much.